0: Hey folks, this episode doesn't have too much to do with the First World War, but it was really fun to do. My great friend Jake has been asking me to do this for a while, saying that the BFWWP community doesn't know enough about me personally. So, we got together and made it happen. In this talk, we discuss the podcast some stuff about World War I, myself and my background, and the current war in Ukraine. In the interest of full disclosure, I served in the US Army, but did not deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan. This episode was originally released on Patreon, but I wanted to release it here as a gift to my buddy, Jake. I hope you folks out there enjoy it. Merry Christmas, Jake. In 2023, man, we are walking your dad's battlefields in France. Let's rock. All right. So everything we say now uh-huh. is recorded. So uh, just so you know. I'm new here. with this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm relatively untrained. So oh, okay. um you've
1: done a bunch of podcasts.
0: Yeah. Uh okay.
1: Let me ask how did you get into all this before we start? I'm Jake and I followed your show. I stumbled onto it because I got into world war one. I. I went, who is this guy? And then I contacted you and you were kind enough to get in touch. So we become I think pretty good friends as a result. Well I hope yeah. so.
0: Yeah, yeah. No. Seriously. Why, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is—is is this the part where I'd be like, I don't actually like Jake at all. Sorry.
1: Like, <laughs> right. hey, you,
0: yeah, you'd fit into another subgroup, but
1: that's okay. Well. <laughs> anyway, as you can as you can hear, we get along great. Yes. We
0: got, yeah. We're separate. How old are you? Me. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, I am forty-four. Man. Forty-four. I am
1: sixty-nine. November twenty-eighth. Now, we've got this wide disparity in ages, but we're both into World War I. How does that happen?
0: Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll back up a second. So, folks, as you can tell, we are well into this conversation, and we're doing something different. So this is Jake, a good friend of mine, listener of the okay. podcast, as, as you guys have heard already. Um, Jake uh, is, a, is a supporter on Patreon, and one of the perks he gets, of course, I mean – he wouldn't have to just be a supporter on Patreon, but uh I would do this anyways. But he gets to uh to interview me rather than me doing the interviewing, which is uh now, this
1: is not an interview, this is a conversation. Yeah, gotta... well, what a, whatever, oh.
0: man. Um so yeah, yeah so that, that's what's happening, folks. We we just kind of rolled, I just hit the record button and we just started going. Um, so all right. So question like why why am I into World War One? Um oh man, it's well especially like in the last, um, nine years when I start, you know, since I've been doing podcasting, um, I, I'm increasingly, uh, ever more fascinated by, by it. And, and I'm fascinated by the, the events of the conflict so much of which I I still don't know, um, so learning everything is like it, it's it's really cool, but also seeing like the bigger trends, like the the reverberations throughout world history that that are still happening today, um, and and being able to tie a lot of that stuff back to like World War One, I, I still I find it fascinating. Like, really how did I? What's up? It's really fascinating, and
1: and I was sort of the same way because I grew up on a military base in Germany, mm-hmm. in- 1963, which is not that long after World War I, but as a kid, everything was so... I'm living in Stuttgart and my high school was Ernst Rom's headquarters, right?
0: Yeah, so, yeah.
1: So we are inundated. So we'd go to antique stores and I don't know if you can see, this is the very first antique I ever bought for 25 cents, one Deutschmark. And it's a 19, I don't know, 1914 Iron Cross first class. <laughs> i ended up getting thrown out of that antique store because i opened a drawer that was more or less you say world war ii history and they were <laughs> but i did get the the uh, iron cross but i was thinking what really will sit the background for world war one is this tv show on netflix called the empress and it's about the woman that married, you know, Franz Ferdinand, that got shot by the guy that led to this, that led to this, that somehow seems to be going on again. <laughs> so.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Um, Man, just for me, I mean, it was, I mean, so like, like I, I think I've said before on, on other podcasts, like for me, it was, it was a music video um it was the the rock band metallica they had a song um called one and in their music video they used clips from the movie johnny got his gun and yeah,
1: I to talk about that yeah
0: yeah and and so you know i i got into it i was like like what is this like johnny got his gun and then i found out it was a book i always enjoyed reading and uh man it was a book of you know it was a story that took place you know ap- after world war one and um I just like dove into it as a, as a kid. And then, uh, of course, with Sutherland. Say again. Act- Donald Sutherland, the actor. Who played um, Jesus
1: in. Yeah, in- one of his yeah. first roles with his long hair screaming out of the train. Well, it's funny you should mention uh, music as what got you into World War I. As a kid, I don't know if you remember Snoopy versus the Red Baron, Charles Schultz. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, uh, cartoonists as a kid, right? So I write him saying, send me a picture of uh, the Red Baron, or Snoopy being chased by the Red Baron. And he did send it, but I, I don't know if it was a mimeograph sheet, but I had it. And the song that got me into it was the Royal Guardsman playing uh, Snoopy versus the Red Baron. And this was in 1968, I can tell. Snoopy came out in the First World War, and it was a, it was a number one hit. So anyway, so I got into the movie, The Blue Max and all these others. And, you know, then something happened in movies. And that's when I saw Johnny Got His Gun. Well, before, and then I watched Paths of Glory and Johnny Got His Gun. That was hardcore. And that made you go, hey, wait a second. You know, World War One was hardcore premium strength. And you watch Paths of Glory by Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Who, I mean, he was brilliant. And Kirk Douglas really in a great role. I mean, Kubrick and... Douglas and Trumbo had such a great relationship that they ended up doing Spartacus together, which is nothing like world war one, of course, but no, <laughs> as you can see, no. I got my degree in history after I got my degree in film. So I kind of merged the two together, but, and I want to ask you something that you and I have talked about mm-hmm. 11, 11, 11, I think veterans day is much more of a world war one uh, commemoration, but I mean, if it was 11, 11, 11, 11 o'clock, why wouldn't you just go the day before at midnight? I mean, (laughs) why? I know pomp and circumstance of the time, but I'd hate to be that guy at 1045. Of course, I would have hated to be the very first guy.
0: (laughs) Right, right, right. Oh, man. So I need to um, That's see like so that's something that like I can't. I can't, I can't answer because like, I, I don't know why they chose like 11 o'clock. Um, God, I've always just kind of taken it for granted. Um, yeah,
1: I would just thought of that last night and I went, wait a second. Because I was thinking, well, why, why commemorate the very last guy, like in uh, All Quiet on the Western Front? Why not commemorate the guy in the beginning, the second guy, that nurse over here? Mm-hmm. And then, God, I, I, it was such a crazy war. And then I went yes. the to
0: yeah. So, I mean, we have, there's a fantastic book. It's on my shelf right there. It's um No Man's Land by John Toland. And yeah. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to take that book down off the shelf here for the, for the podcast here soon. But I, um, cause I'll be, we're getting into that time. Um The book No Man's Land talks a lot about 1918 and that's yeah. its main focus. And it gets to like, the very end of the war with the negotiations between the allies and the germans and uh and i i bet it, it will cover the reasoning for for 11 o'clock in there i i listened to it on audiobook about a year or two ago um so i don't remember specifically if it's covered in there but uh, yeah, i would have i would have had it like two weeks after it started
1: <laughs> but, oh yeah yeah, I got to ask you a question because I know all quiet on the Western front. We were talking about how yeah. uh, a machine gun scene really upsets you now and me as well. Cause it really showed, you know, not like 10 or 11 making it through, but nobody making it yeah. through. Yeah. And I had to wonder, well, I looked up when was the machine gun made and you go 1911 and the generals had to know, cause they probably would have tested it on something living out in a field before the war So they knew what was going on. So somebody must have said, well, let's send these 60,000 troops against these machine guns and see what really happens. And then when the crazy thing is when they got all mowed down, the Germans said, okay, now let's send our (laughs) 60,000. So explain to me that logic and also explain to me what a killing zone is.
0: Okay. So I think the, the, the The thing with the machine guns in 1914 was that, yes, they were new weapons, um, much like like um, hand grenades were in their infancy. The airplane was in its infancy. um, But all these weapons were new. And even though like these generals, you know, British, French, Belgian, Germans, like they may have known about them, Russians, um, even though these generals may have known about them, I don't think they knew particularly with the machine gun, like just how powerful and deadly it was. Um,
1: you think, wouldn't they have learned that in the Civil War? Ask a Native American about the Gatling gun. I would have thought that, you know, no, I think they wanted to test their fun toys.
0: <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think they paid attention. I mean, I think I, I know that that Europe, um, some European powers did send military personnel over here to to come over uh, to watch. the the civil war to observe and and to see, you know, if they could glean any new tactics from what we were doing. I, I don't remember who made this quote. I believe it was a, it was a Prussian officer. Um, but he came back to, to Germany and was like talking about our civil war was like, uh, there's nothing to learn from the Americans. It's just two mass conscript armies slaughtering each other. And,
1: it, yeah, that would
0: that would pretty much say it. You, but it's funny, it's funny that he said that because, like the Civil War, the the two big symbols of of the American Civil War were were the musket and and the trench. Um, mm. You know, fast forward fifty years, and you know the big symbols of World War One are going to be um, the machine gun and and the trench.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of a scene. I'll go back to a movie in Caligula. With uh, Peter O'Toole, there's this scene where Caligula executes all his foes, buries them in sand with only their heads sticking out, and then he's got this chariot that has a spinning scythe on it, and, and you
0: just go, that's the same thing, only 2,000 years earlier. Right, and- right, yeah, yeah. I Again, like, it was it was a new weapon, nobody was really, under- nobody really understood, like, just how destructive they were, you know, and, and I seem to recall yeah. that, yeah. like. The killing zone now. Yeah. Now that- yeah. So the, the, the killing zones were like the, particularly the Germans, they would set up their their barbed wire in in such a way that they would, um, one, they, they would leave, sometimes they would leave lanes open in, in the barbed wire field. So they would lay out like, like a big field of it. And then, um, but they would leave like a gap in it, right? Or they would shape it in such a way that they would drive you into a certain area and that's like, like- cattle to the slaughter yeah yeah <laughs> so they would drive you know the um, their their enemies into a certain area where their machine guns were already sighted and then it was basically just you just had to open fire and you would cut
1: triangulated kind of yes uh.
0: yeah yeah well there's another
1: another new weapon I want to ask you about in World War 1 that I think you probably can relate to the tank yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh that was pretty oh no, that won't work. That won't work. And then the Germans afterward going, Hey man, that really worked. Let's get these tractors for World War Two and modify them. So
0: tell us tell me about the tank. Yeah, well, I mean inside so, experience. So that's like that's another um another weapon, you know, it was developed after World War One very you know, relatively quickly throughout 1915, and then it introduced uh, somewhat, well, fairly prematurely on the battlefield in 1916. Like, I mean, these things tended to break down like like crazy. But the tank, you know, originally it was going to be called a uh, a land ship, which I'm really glad they didn't. They I, like didn't that, look at. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, do. but if, I don't. I don't think it would be so cool to be like, you know, like, well, Mike, like, what'd you do in the army? Like, oh, I was a land. Ship. Well, you are you are a tanker, aren't you? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I get to say, you know, I'm I'm a tanker instead of a. Uh, What's you doing a tank? A land shipper. So me, drive? me personally, like my time in the service was I was on Abrams, the Abrams M1A1 yeah. main battle tank. I was a um, I was a gunner, and then uh, briefly a uh, uh, commander. You know, for like.
1: All right. So were you claustrophobic? And thank no. you again.
0: No, no, I I wasn't. I wasn't. And I'll tell you, um, and members of my, of my crew, they they could probably back it up if you were to ask them, like, most of the time, what I did in the gunner's hole was um, sleep. So, (laughs) okay. Now, this will be a stretch,
1: maybe. How do you compare that experience to what it was like with the first tankers?
0: Oh, okay. So that's um, conveniences. I
1: know the Abrams is pretty, in terms of tanks, is a pretty deluxe tank. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the, 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 I think like the spirit of the old tanks, like still, still exists. Like now that I'm, now that I think about it, like, of course, the, the Abrams is much, much safer okay, we had um like, for example, in the Abrams, um, we had a lot of like safety guards in place to to keep stuff from like if if like a shell was banging around the inside of the turret, you know, we, you wouldn't get hit. Um, the ammunition was was stored away from the from the crew, and it had um the ammunition was stored in a separate compartment behind blast proof doors, and if they were to cook off, there are blow-off panels on, on the top of the turret that would just direct the... the See, I keep thinking, like, a World War II tank
1: is, like, a oh, a big uh, metal container with wheels on it, like a basic box with a steering wheel, and you got ammunition and
0: all sorts of stuff lying all over the floor. Yeah, so this, you know, the Abrams is, is very different, so, like, it, it's designed to protect the crew, and and to still be lethal on on the battlefield. Um so we had a lot of that and we had a lot of like protection and of course the coveralls we wore were were flame in, you know we had um you know we we called them CBC um combat vehicle crewman helmets you know so it padded with ear protection and everything so we had all you know it's a vastly different experience than the first tankers in the in the BEF. Um, those tanks were of course they were they were slow, you know, like average, like four miles an hour speed. I mean, you could, you could outwalk these things. Um,
1: (laughs) I'm staying behind one. Yeah. I'm I'm not even going to stick my head out.
0: Yeah. People. So, you know, when you're thinking of the tank, you're thinking of that, that one that's shaped like a, like a rhombus and um, that's your mark, your, you know, your, your mark, mark five, mark six and stuff like that. Um, So those, those first British tanks, like People sometimes ask, like, like, why didn't they have a turret? Why were the guns on the side? Well, in the middle was the big engine block, right? So you couldn't put a turret on top of it. Um, so the engine, everybody, you had like this engine block and everybody operated around it. So you had the gunners on the side. You had the, the men who steered. So you would have one guy steer the right track, another guy steer the, the left track. Um, you had the driver and the commander up front. Um, And then the, the, you know, again, like the gunners on the side and it was large, rather large crews and no protections. Like the, the, the engine was like this, this like red hot mass, right? Like two feet away from you. And, you know, like you get jumbled around, you know, and you get, you get knocked off balance and you put your hand out. You, you're going to, you know, you're going to burn your hand on the engine block. You know, it was that sort of thing fumes. Um there was the the exhaust didn't didn't work correctly or wasn't wasn't very well designed. So the inside would fill up with with exhaust a lot, like the guys would be throwing up um or passing out or throwing up and passing out, or you know, it was hot. It was was scary. The scary is this was probably considered a good assignment
1: as opposed to being outside with a gun.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So so I mean in, in in terms of safety, like The the Abrams is like, you know, like light years ahead. I was also thinking, comparing that, because
1: when you develop new weapons on the battlefield, it kind of reminds me in the weird way of the B-24 in World War II. They got this new airplane that's got a fuel tank in the center, and you got, it's just, you know, I would think on a tank with no armor, one bullet gets in, and it's just going to ricochet
0: around, or, man. Well, I I mean, the the first tanks like they were like generally um uh bulletproof the the Germans they did develop an anti-tank rifle which was like just a, a bigger bullet just a bigger <laughs> bullet and it was like like an infantry rifle but like you know one that like uh i don't know man like <laughs> i can't think of, that like a giant would fire you know and and i guess yeah. when the wh- whatever unlucky german soldier got to fire this massive rifle um I think it would generally like break their shoulders (laughs) like just (laughs) recoil um yeah but like i said and that was considered a good assignment (laughs) right right but the germans they you know their first encounter with with tanks they the the guys on the ground who were on the receiving end of the first tank attack like they they genuinely panicked and and fled but you know the, the germans very quickly learned to adapt like their 77 millimeter field gun you know that they use that their artillery yeah. used, they would just you know rather than fire it at an angle you would just you, you aim it directly at, at the tank right German, they didn't re- uh, reflective armor or any of that yeah. as they oh. develop no and of course like a, a solid artillery barrage would would um you know coming down on the tank would, would take those out um yeah and then guys who were close, the Germans also developed, I mean, they had this tactic anyways of like a lot of their stick grenades, rather than just have one stick grenade, they would have like, um, oh my God, like, like 10 of them all taped together, oh, close. tied oh, to wait. one fuse. And they would, they would just, you know, you, you would have to be ex- pretty brave to do this, but they would run up to the tank and, and like put it under the, put this bunt, this mass of grenades. Yeah. Under well, the or you sort of walk up to the tank because they're only going four miles. now you don't want to pass yeah. it. Yeah, so. yeah. And, you know they would always. You know, um, that's the that's the, the one way that you know those and the big. I was thinking, you know, with the
1: big treads because right. of the trenches, they probably were had to be designed to you know
0: tip in and then tip out. So that's the that was the thing was like you you see this the British tank and it's, you know, shaped like a, again, like a rhombus and you're like, what a weird shape with the track goes all the way, you know, around it. And, um, that's exactly to, to be able to cross the trenches. Cause it would, it would come in and drop down and then like, you know, dig itself out and, and keep on going. See, this is why I love talking with you or listening to your podcast. Cause I only just thought of that by talking to you
1: right now. And that's, that's yeah. what makes conversation and history so much is when you take the opinions sort of out of it, mm-hmm. you know, like good guy, bad guy, and just observe history as a whole. And that's kind of what I do now. I, yeah. you do and, so, and I can compare, but you were talking about trench warfare. I was thinking, you know, like the machine gun was developed. What was it called? The trench sweeper just to go in there and, and then and then trenches got so crazy. I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh mining like beneath uh hill 60 is a great movie yeah and i know when in our talks when you were on the the battlefields uh in europe you got to see where the hill blew up yeah and i was wondering when you closed your eyes what did you feel how did uh, you know, just tell me about that experience cuz i didn't get to go and i
0: wanted to but tell yeah me. so you know, i mean first like um we i am gonna get you there man we we have to get you there because we have to see we, we have to get you to the spot where you where your dad served during during world war ii um and we and we're gonna get that done here um
1: there are easier
0: hills there <laughs> yeah yeah and we'll drive that that part but um just to go back like so there's like a cool feeling um that i and, and when I go to the, to the Meuse region of, you know, where, where Verdun and where the American, the the Meuse-Argonne offensive took place, like there is something about that region. Um, It is, uh, I find it stunningly beautiful. Um, It's also uh, really unchanged. Um, So the villages were, many of the villages, you know, were were severely damaged or or completely destroyed, but post-war, the the french nationals returning to their homes like they told the french government like you will rebuild this village you will rebuild it exactly as it was oh
1: man i love that
0: only the french
1: only that's such zoning out here where i live it's like i
0: live out in the country and they'll go uh
1: let's move out of the country and get a zero lot line no that's that's just
0: oh so so it's really cool and 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 a lot of these villages i mean like so that you know everything is new you know it's it's a century old but you know there are still traces like there's like um the church in Canel um that is like you you walk around to the back of the church and, and the wall is is peppered with with bullet holes all yeah. over it and um you see that That's everywhere not- down downtown the Verdun work, they probably used the brickwork that had fallen by the wayside
1: next to it and then Use that to rebuild too.
0: Yeah, I mean, in, in some cases, yeah. But like, but going going to that region, it does feel like, um, oh man, it's a definite draw. Like for it for is. the Verdun battlefield, like I almost so you, spiritual. Kind well, of, so you're asking about you you're asking about like how I felt it at like um, the the site of of the the mining warfare. Um, I will say. I didn't, nothing there other than like a, a reverence and, and respect for yeah. what, what happened there. I will say like, I do remember my first visit to, to the Verdun battlefield. Like I was, I was still in the service and I, we drove from Germany down to, to Verdun and then we were going on our way to, to Normandy. Um, or it was the reverse. I, I forget it was, it was 20 years ago, but um <laughs> when we were at verdun i mean i i will say it, w- it was a day in june it was june of like 2000 2001 and um a beautiful summer day and we were standing in front of of the ossuary at at, at Douaumont, you know on, on the verdun battlefield and, and the ossuary itself i mean this is a there's pictures of it that i have on on my podcast page on facebook and everything and uh but it looks like like the hilt of a sword, like driven into the ground, you know, and then in front of it there's a there's a French military cemetery with fifteen thousand Frenchmen buried there, you know and a, and the the ossuary itself um contains the remains of some hundred and thirty thousand French and German troops, like completely unknown at at this point. Um, yes,
1: missing in action,
0: yeah. I, I do remember that day, like visiting that cemetery and it was, you know, like my first time there and we we're, you know, like walking around and everything. And, and I said to my friends, I was like, like guys, it's like, check it out real quick. And, um, they just stopped and we stopped talking and I was like, there's no birds. There's, it's a beautiful day in the summer and, and we're surrounded by woods. There's no birds in the sky. Like everything was silent. And, um, and I do recall At that time, like I felt like um I was being watched, you know, like like something was like watching me while while I was there.
1: Um when I got I've been to a battlefield at Gettysburg,
0: mm -hmm.
1: close your eyes, it's like not being watched for me, but in the presence of, you know, with all that emotion, and you just put your mind back a hundred years and you're going, holy cow, it's just yeah. I yeah, couldn't, but, I couldn't do it. I could. I mean, as a soldier, towards the end, would you go over a trench going into machine gun fire, knowing it was useless? God, what a hard order to obey. obey.
0: Yeah, I. You know, I, I imagine a lot of those guys like really didn't want to, but you know, that's you know the that's the the unfortunate. Part of being a soldier like uh, it's kind of like the old saying like yours, um, yours is not to, yours is not to ask why yours is but to do or die, you know, so like, it's 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 tough like I'm sure a lot of those guys, you know, went over, you know, went over the top like saying like I really don't want to be the last one killed, but you know, unfortunately, they they had to do it, and and a lot of them were killed sadly yeah
1: yeah well go back to your impressions of Vietnam uh, I was just gonna say Vietnam sorry kind of similar uh Verdun mm-hmm. Go <laughs> back to how-
0: yeah so our- so one thing is like um man to, being there for, for me like being there in in like when when it's rainy and and misty because that's I mean the 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 American, the, the argonne battle was, was largely fought (laughs) under rain. I mean, so it was a 47 day battle and it, and it, it rained for 43 of them. And, um, (sighs) so, and, and Verdun was also known for like a lot. I mean, it started in a, it started in, in winter, it ended in winter and then, you know, it, it was known for the mud, you know, so, so rain turned the battlefield into a quagmire and everything. And, um, so if you're in the, the Meuse region, because of like how it's shaped, you know, geologically, like it's, it's pretty prone to storms and, and weather. So if you're ever there, you get like, you get the fog, you get these days of like rain and, and you know, just raw cold days. Like, and when I'm there and and we have those days like that, like I can like, I'm almost waiting for like a. Uh, a column of doughboys to like march on the road like in front of me even though i'm driving in a car like i'm I'm waiting to like see them or or to see someone like walk out in front of me you know like a a french soldier or a german soldier like you you just i i think like you do feel i i don't know if i'm looking into it too much but i i, yeah. I feel like the weight of, of what has happened around in in that area i feel that like around me you know
1: Plus your personal experiences, I I think you can relate to it so much. I mean, I've I've never experienced it, but I've grown up on military bases. And there's just a, I mean, I look at you, you got the buzz cut, you know, you carry that. (laughs) People in the military, you know, end up uh, with a different style, especially those folks that have served in combat. The only time they talk about combat is with another person that's been in combat. My, and my dad was like that, so I have to learn about all this stuff. We've got from guys like you, and I really appreciate that. So now that I've carried on, go back to that blowing up of that hill, real good.
0: Yeah. So that's um. So that site is uh, Volcua, the the Butte de Vauquois. So the the so this is interesting because, like in 1914, the Butte de Vauquois, it was it was a solitary hill. Um, it's it's unconnected to the. To the other hills in the area, um, so it was a uh, you know it was it was an important site. Like you wanted you wanted that high ground so that you could dominate the land around it. Um, by 1918, with air warfare now more much more well well developed, holding a hill like like the Butte de Valcourt was actually obsolete. Like just four years later, you know. But yeah. in the time in 1914 and and 15 and 16. Um, so what happened is, uh, the French, you know, in their retreat south in, in the autumn of 1914, they, they abandoned Vauquois like, and the Germans took it. The French then coming back after the battle of the Marne and, you know, and then the the line starts to gel into the, into trench warfare, the, the French attacked the hill and what wound up happening over, over a few months was the French took half of the hill and the Germans took the other half. And there was the village of, of Valcroix was, was on top of it. It was a village of about, I think it was 168 residents. Um, you know, so buildings, a couple of streets. Oh. And um, so everybody dug in and then um, infantry attacks became suicidal. Like you, you couldn't do it. So what happened is they, the French were like, why don't we dig under? and just start blowing up the Germans from from underneath them and the Germans got the idea you know they got the same idea and um that that's just how it was like you, on on Vaoqua you didn't do infantry attacks you held the line and you just you know of course there would be mortars and and throwing of grenades and stuff like that and um but the biggest thing was that you held the line and just prayed to god that like you know the ground under you wasn't going to explode uh, yeah. and it was fear, fear from above fear from yeah below, and fear from yeah yeah just, so uh, over over the course of, of you know throughout the war that hill took um 519 mine explosions um 300 of them were were conducted by the french the germans uh they did the biggest one they packed 60 tons of um explosive into into a mine shaft 60 tons and and basically blew off the western side of the hill like um so hi is
1: that the video peter jackson used the, the no, that the
0: no so <clears throat> so beaucois isn't as well known because it was a french and german battlefield um and the Americans came in basically like at at the last minute. Like um, it was the Americans that that captured the hill, but that's that's a whole other story. Um, but so how how I like to explain the hill is is if you're watching the the video form of this, like so this was the hill, um, you know, and you, and you had the the village on top of it. At the end of the war, the the hill looked like this. Like it's it's been like completely gouged out, like, um, and the, and Vauqua, the, the pre-war Vauqua village, there's not a trace of it remains, post-war Vauqua village was rebuilt, but at, at the bottom of the hill now, where, where it is today, um, oh, so,
1: man.
0: yeah, I think the, if I recall correctly, um, the Peter Jackson's film, like, They Shall Not Grow Old, that, that mine explosion that they're, that they're showing, that's, um. That's Hawthorne Crater, no doubt, uh, on, on the Somme, which, which I've visited uh, as well. Like, that's also an impressive, massive well, hole on the ground. Yeah,
1: beneath Hill 60, you know, it's Australians they bring into it, yeah. miners. I was just thinking, these guys probably said, golly, I'll take any job to get me out of this mine over here in Australia. And then they go over there. But, I mean, they risk their lives. And, and I guess it's that old adage, we save lives. By having to put fewer people in harm's way, right but, right man, that was that was a really qu- quite a movie, and it talked about this thing where uh towards the end of the war, they were running out of soldiers so they would send white feathers in the mail to people that hadn't been conscripted yeah and it was like man I, I just can't imagine,
0: yeah, well, that's you know that was uh, back home and on on the uh British, uh, home front, like that's how, you know, during wartime, like obviously war itself is an extreme act and, and, you know, an emotion start to get extreme and, and, um, yeah, that's, that's what, what what some British men faced. And if they didn't sign up, um, you know, they, they would, They'd have a white feather stuck on them or sometimes like I've read of even like having them like like shoved up their nostril and, you know, to purposely to hurt them as well. Um, it was to to show them off as cowards. Um, uh, yeah, because by the end of the war, like uh, Britain had to start conscripting men. They they hadn't done that uh, in the beginning.
1: You know, I was reading something, I guess just yesterday or heard something in the Ukrainian war. Russians and Ukrainians. That's two hundred thousand in nine months, and those numbers, to me, run akin to World War One in the same sort of neck of the woods.
0: Yeah. Well, I think so. One thing is that um the the currently ongoing Russo-Ukrainian war, I, I think it'll be called in in the books, is um, yeah, it, it's basically turned into a very um unsexy like world war 1 style artillery duel and i say unsexy because of like how things are portrayed in the media so like you know you 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 do see the tanks and stuff um you know and and the the destroyed apartment buildings and everything but but what's you know what's really happening is is a grinding um, artillery battle out there on on the front. and it's um it's expensive. like i I say that in terms of like destruction, in terms of lives. yeah, i, I don't doubt. like I've read something that like um well, the sources I've heard have been that like eighty thousand Russians have been killed at this point. like, and i i'm I'm unaware of any Ukrainian figures because they they hold those pretty pretty close to the vest, um you know, for security reasons. but yeah,. Okay. It,
1: World War One changed that empire, you know yeah. and uh, now it's just, it's just crazy being historians yeah. yeah, how that old adage yet yeah, just repeats itself, and you're going, yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> I think also what what you're seeing too is is like you know it, it's happening in in ukraine and and I even find myself um falling into this not not a trap but like just falling into this line of thought is like like where is the big decisive battle well they're they're happening all the time so so in world war one like you know the germans invaded through belgium and into france and then came the the allied like counterpunch at at the marne but like where you like like you would have thought like okay a massive battle like uh, let's go back to waterloo like it was a smashing, you know, like, like defeat. And that's it. The war is, you know, that that enemy has been vanquished. Like, um, with the Marne, you know, the Germans, yeah, I mean, they suffered, They, they lost the battle, and they suffered mass casualties everywhere, but it, but they weren't out. They were like, well, you know, you know, we still have troops to hold the line. And so what they did was they retreated, and they dug in, and the battles continued. And, and then, you know, you get you get battles like the Battle of the, of the Somme, the Battle of Verdun, you get the battle, you know, Passchendaele, the, the, the British offensive there. And, and all of these battles go on for months and, and they, they're grinding out huge numbers of casualties. And it's like none of these are, are, are the, the knockout blow. What you have to do is you simply have to grind down your enemy, you know, before yeah. he grinds you down. You're seeing this, I think we're seeing the same thing in in Ukraine, because in in the beginning, you know, Russia went for that knockout blow on Kiev and they got obliterated up up on the northern front. And then, you know, throughout the spring, you know, they were they were grinding their way forward and the Ukrainians were were trying to hold the line. And then right at the beginning of September, I believe that the the much awaited Ukrainian counterattack came and they push right. back, you know, you're, you're are, talking, you're yeah, talking
1: but, and me asking a question, thinking because from the media and YouTube, I keep thinking the Ukrainians are like a guerrilla warfare, but you're telling me they're holding lines. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know anything about yeah. this.
0: Yeah, no. So this, this is, you know, pretty conventional w- warfare. Just it's it's almost like, like World War One, World War II style warfare just fought with incredibly advanced weaponry um so like just to finish my thought like like so you're seeing the ukrainians push the russians back you're seeing maneuver warfare and and yeah. you know the the taking and retaking of ground and like and even though a lot of the news is is like breathless and like like wow you know like well the russians are beaten now like unfortunately it, you know as we saw in world war one and world war two <laughs> like like armies can take these massive hits and and if they're big enough and, and well supplied, like they they can keep, they can keep going. So that's, you know, right now, just a couple of days ago, um, Russian forces have retreated from from Kherson and 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 the large amount of, of the Kherson Oblast. That's a, the the province. Um and they're retreating behind the the Dnipro River. And, you know, is is it a shattering defeat? Like yeah, it's it's pretty bad. I mean, it certainly looks bad. But again, like is the Russian army completely routed and and are they collapsing and and everything like no, they're they're still they're still hanging in there and and the Ukrainians are still hanging in there too and and um and just grinding grinding that line back and uh yeah. so that's that's what we're seeing. It's 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 modern warfare. It's it, um there are no like knockout blows. I mean, e- if you even look to our civil war, Gettysburg was, was the high watermark of, of the, uh, of the Confederacy. And, and it was where the union decisively beat the rebels, yeah. but, um, that war still yeah. went on for another two years.
1: And instead of the machine gun, you had the Springfield rifle.
0: Yeah. 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 So
1: it's, you know, this has been a great, I originally wanted to talk to you about movies and go through them all. And then, I knew we would get into this conversation that once again, I learned a bunch from you. I, that like, I honestly, I thought the Ukrainians were guerrilla warfare. Cause all the videos you see is look, here comes the, the Jeep, and it shot out a rocket. And look, it shot down that plane. And then they drive off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, uh, it's, it's, it's conventional. It's, it's force on force. Lately.
1: Now, I want to get together and talk some more.
0: I hope, I hope this worked for you, but yeah, man. I, yeah.
1: And, Cut out my rambling, and more of you, because uh, no, that's you were, fine, man.
0: Yeah, service. Oh just, yeah, no worries. Yeah,
1: and we'll go to Europe. And uh, yeah, my dad uh, was twenty-one when he was. Uh, he survived. And they didn't know where to put him, so they made him head MP of occupied Paris at twenty-one. So you can imagine. But they're all like Peter Jackson. They they're all young old people.
0: Yeah. You know? yeah I mean that's that's the amazing thing is it you know and and um that's something that always um, gets me with with the military is is like how much responsibility you're given and you're like you're so young like i i remember um when i I came home and I was um trying to put like my first resume together as a as a civilian, and um I was working with my cousin. And I was just listing everything that I had been responsible for, like in in the military. And, um, you know, like I was responsible for that tank. That tank was, you know, $3 million. And I was also. never
1: talk about it. I just found out you were a tank commander. I had to squeeze that out of you. You were, you know, I mean, it was brief.
0: It was, it was like, you know, I was a tank commander for like a month or two. And, um, but like, but then, um, (laughs) but I will say, but I will say, I will say, you know, it was the highest position I got, so so I'll, I'll I will always like try to throw that in there. Um,
1: yeah, commander is like that's a really good, well. Yeah, even to be a, an enlisted guy is a, is a real. Yeah. You know, when I see him, yeah, I see a Vietnam veteran, and I told you I saw that World War II yeah. veteran the day, and you go up and talk to him, and you just break down.
0: Oh and, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was, I mean,
1: is very special. Yeah. And, even as you know, even as a kid, when I got this Iron Cross, and I, once again, I want to thank you. Oh. For getting together and, and thank you for everything. Yeah. I'm no, but I'm sure it was deep, knee deep in the big money.
0: So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to talk about movies the, the next time, man. That'll that'll be good. Yeah. That'll we'll All be right.
1: There. Thanks again, and I'm proud to be a patron, and uh, we will get to Europe. Yeah. I will be close my eyes on that battlefield.
0: Yes. Yes. And we're going to do that. and Let's do it. 2023, man. All right. I'll stop recording.
2: Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual, because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com prenatal.